Many of you know that we've had a lot of work done around the building over the last few months. There's still projects that are getting done even today, uh, but there has been certainly a lot of help that we have received. And I want to take a moment and, and thank you for that. In the, in the book of Nehemiah, we read about how the, those that were captive in, in Babylon, even if you look in the book of Ezra as well, uh, returned back to Jerusalem and began the rebuilding process. You see it start in Ezra as they began rebuilding the temple and the altar there in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is primarily about them rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, having some sort of stability and, and having some safety that was put in place. And in those passages, as you read through those two books, you get a list of names, names of people that were there. And for the most part, uh, these weren't necessarily architects, engineers, stonemasons of any kind, but just regular, ordinary, everyday people that recognize a need and were following what instructions were given to them so that they could get God's work done. So I'd like to ask that you do something for me. If you helped out in any of the work days that we had over the course of the summer, if you moved a chair, if you painted, if you put up drywall, if you did any sort of work to help out here in the church, could you just stand for me for a second? I know who you are, so don't make me come to you and make you stand. But just stand, just stand for a moment. I know there are some of you that aren't standing, um, and I'm not going to do this, I don't do this often, but I just wanted to, just people to see that there's a lot of work that gets done around the church building, and it's a collective effort. Uh, it's not one person that does everything, but there is a collective effort uh, that as the body of Christ comes together to see that God's work is being done, there is a great blessing in many hands coming together to get God's work done. You may be seated. I just want to thank you for that. Um, and I don't do this to, to embarrass anyone else. Uh, there's a reason that names of people were mentioned there in Scripture as we see different people helping out, different people contributing. Um, and I'm not saying that you all were, you know, worthless outside of this building, and you're only good and only useful because you're here, because we'll take anybody. Uh, but God uses everybody. God uses the, the ones that are not necessarily skilled as much as everyone else. You look at what is mentioned there in Ezra and Nehemiah, and as I mentioned, these aren't the, the typical people. If you were looking to rebuild a city, these weren't the people that you were going to handpick. These weren't the people that you were going to, you know, sift through resumes and, and interview. These are the people that you're going to cast off and say, okay, now where are the real, where are the contractors, where are the builders, where are the, the people that really know what they're doing instead of these people that don't know their difference between a rake and a shovel. Uh, but praise the Lord, God used them. And he mentions them there in scripture. And I wanted to just take a moment and not to glorify ourselves, but to just praise God that he can use people like us to accomplish things. Even if it's just slapping some paint on a wall or, you know, putting on a baseboard or putting on a chair rail or anything. Praise the Lord for, for how he works. So I wanted to thank you. I know that uh, many others are appreciative for the work that has been done around the building. In fact, there are some in the school that have appreciated some of the work that we have done. And uh, the K3 class has made a couple of cards uh, for the, the church and for all the workers that helped out, thanking us for 
how nice the building looks and for all the effort that went forth in, in making the building look as good as it does. And so I, again, I just, I want to express my appreciation and thanks to all of you because no matter what you've done, even if it's viewed as something small in your eyes, it's very much appreciative. Even if you were only able to dedicate an hour, thank you. Thank you for, for that hour. Thank you for making a sacrifice to be here and to help out in some capacity because uh, without you, we, we wouldn't be where we are today. Now, certainly there's still more work to be done and we're trusting that God is gonna continue to use all of our efforts, but thank you for the collective work to see that God's work is being done his way. And we're just excited about the things that the, that the Lord is doing. Um, with that, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, this morning, we're continuing to look at the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, and we'll be looking at 2 Kings chapter 5 and verses 8 through 10 in a sermon that I've titled Pride and Humility. Pride and humility, polar opposites here. I view many of you, if not all of you, as very humble servants for Christ because were it not for me asking you to stand up, you wouldn't have stood up. And even when I asked you to stand up, some of you remained seated. Uh, but I think that's a good thing. Again, I wasn't asking you to stand up so that we could all boast in what we were able to do through our own strength and through our own ability, but to give credit to God for how he can use people like us to get things done. And so I commend you for, for the work that has been done. I commend you for recognizing the gifts and talents that God has equipped you with and putting them to use for his service, specifically for the beautification of the resources that he's given us here at Latham Bible Baptist Church. So this morning, as we look at this passage here in 2 Kings chapter 5, we're looking at it with the idea of comparing and contrasting pride and humility. And in a moment, we'll read verses 8 through 10 here in 2 Kings chapter 5. But when it comes to who God uses, it's not always who we expect. God used a, a little shepherd boy who wasn't fit for battle to defeat a giant. Now again, if we knew that we had to go and destroy this giant, how many of you can say that you would have selected David to be that person to go up against a giant by the name of Goliath. Would any of you have chosen someone? Okay, maybe one. But I mean, when we look at it, and you're looking at the, you know, the, the resume of two individuals, and you're thinking, well, this guy's at least nine feet tall, and he's carrying a spear that is you know, weighs heavier than this guy that's going up against him, you're probably not going to think that David's a, an equal match to it. But God chose David, and he used David to get this giant cut down to half his size and destroy him completely and send the Philistines running. God used a dozen ordinary men, most of whom were a little rough around the edges, to be the means by which his gospel would go forth into all the world. Now, what a, what a profound mission. You know, you're, you're thinking about the message of the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners through faith in him. And this is the message that every person needs to hear. The only message by which we get salvation offered to those that believe in it. And you're thinking, okay, this is the highest and most important mission that anyone can be commissioned to do. So you're not going to just handpick you know, a dozen few people, dozen people that you, know, you, you see off doing nothing. You're going to make sure that you vet every single person that comes up, that they are skilled, that they can stand before a group of people and talk and talk eloquently. You, you want to make sure that they're looking clean cut, that they look presentable. But what does Jesus do? The 12 people that he chooses, half of these guys are stinky fishermen. 
You know, some of these guys, they're like, you wouldn't want them to be in front of a crowd, much less around anyone else. And these are the people that God has chosen to use for the greatest mission of getting the gospel out to the world. God used these people. He used a lowly virgin to be the means by which his only begotten son would enter humanity. All throughout the Bible, we have one account after the next of the people that God uses. And often, it is people that we would have least expected. It's not often that men and women of nobility and royalty were chosen to do these incredible tasks, but the simple folk, those who are quietly going about their lives, faithfully serving the Lord where he has them. And this was the case with Elisha's 10th miracle. As God would use a little maid who we talked about previously to be a significant contributor to the healing of a man by the name of Naaman. God had used the nation of Syria to bring judgment upon Israel during a time when Israel was just steeped in idolatry and apostasy. And the Syrians carried away some captives back to their country to serve as slaves. And one of them, a little maid from Israel, ended up serving in the household of Naaman, ministering to his wife, always seeking to honor God. This little Hebrew maid built up such a reputation with her captors that when she offered advice as to how Naaman could actually find healing from this wretched disease of leprosy, the advice was heeded. She spoke of a prophet in Israel who could heal Naaman of his leprosy and the word spread all the way to Naaman and it went all the way to the king of Syria. And thrilled at the idea of his right-hand man being physically cured from leprosy, the king, of, the king of Syria would send a letter to the king of Israel along with all sorts of gold and silver and gifts in exchange for the, the, the healing of his servant Naaman. When the king of Israel received a letter from the king of Syria, his response said a lot about his spiritual condition before God. He was upset. The king of Israel was absolutely confused, perplexed, ultimately thinking that the king of Syria was preparing to go to battle against him. He thought it was all a ruse. Now we're introduced to the king of Israel back in 2 Kings chapter number 3. We saw him with two other kings that came and asked for Elisha's help. And this king of Israel was a man by the name of Jehoram. He wasn't the worst king of Israel, but he wasn't a good king either. And listen to what we're told. If you want to flip back a couple pages to 2 Kings chapter 3 and look at what it says in verses 1, 2, and 3 here in 2 Kings, verse, 2 Kings chapter 3. So this is when we were first introduced to Jehoram. It says, Now Jehoram the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel in Samaria the 18th year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah and he reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord but not like his father and like his mother for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. So when he, Jehoram, king Jehoshaphat and later the king of Edom went to battle against the Moabites, which is what we read about there in the rest of chapter 3. They are in the wilderness and they are in absolutely a rough spot as they're out of water and their armies are going to die. So they come to Elisha knowing that Elisha can do something to help them in this cause because they have to defeat the Moabites. 
And so these three kings come to Elisha to get some help, and Elisha wanted nothing at all to do with Jehoram when these three kings sought him for help. Three men, or these men were about to die in the wilderness for a lack of water, and the only reason the Bible says that Elisha would even speak to these men was because Jehoshaphat, a godly king, was present. When you go down in history, as one who clave unto the sins of Jeroboam, as it says there about King Jehoram in verse number 3 of chapter 3, when you go down as one who made Israel to sin, you're not exactly going to find favor in the eyes of God or any of his servants. And interestingly enough, even after God delivered um, through the prophet Elisha, miraculously providing water for these people out of absolutely nowhere, the heart of Jehoram was still not turned to God. He knew that Elisha was a servant of God and that God was capable of doing supernatural acts, which he had delivered in that instance there in chapter 3. And still, after miraculously receiving water from nowhere, he doesn't even consider that Elisha should be the one that he seeks out for help once again as you fast forward to where we are here in chapter 5 when he receives this letter from the king of Syria who says, here are all these gifts that I'm giving you in exchange for you healing my servant Naaman. Instead, he panics and he says, who, who, am I God that I can heal a person and do such a thing? The thought never occurs to him that there is a prophet in his land who has delivered and done something supernatural through the power of God once before. Why don't I go back to him and see what else he can do? The thought never occurs to him even with all that God had done, rather than sharing the same confidence and the same respect for the prophet of God that the little maid had who was a captive in Syria, he doesn't consider that Elisha should be the one he seeks out for help when he receives this letter from the king. He continues being skeptical and antagonistic. This can be so frustrating because some people refuse to believe in God no matter how clearly God is trying to get their attention. What else does God have to do? What more did God have to do for Jehoram to have him turn to God in repentance and worship only him? Sometimes adults are harder to convince because they get in their own way too often. You think, I think sometimes kids are so much easier to talk to because they're not as logical. They don't try to reason things away. They look at things as simple as it is, and sometimes we wish that adults would do the same. But they get in their own way sometimes. They allow their own logic, their own reason to stand in their way of believing something that is so clearly expressed right in front of them, especially something as the message of Christ. And they dismiss all the truths from the message of the gospel that is right there in front of them, not because they thought it was wrong, but because they thought that they didn't need it or that they thought it wasn't a convenient time or any other number of reasons and ridiculous excuses that they can think of. How anyone would be content with gambling with their eternity is beyond me especially when none of us know how much time we have left here on this earth. And yet so many people are doing just that. Now, Jehoram, the, the king of Israel, he thought so little about God that Elisha didn't even come to his mind upon receiving this letter from the king of Syria. But notice what we read in verse number seven here in 2 Kings chapter five. I know we looked at this verse last week, and this is the response of King Jehoram when he receives the letter from the king of Syria, who's Benhadad. Notice what it says in verse number seven. It says, and it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. 
it's interesting that he acknowledges God's ability. God's ability to bring a person back to life. God's ability to heal a man from an incurable disease. He acknowledges that much. Am I God? Because he's saying, only God can do that. That's what he's saying. This king of Syria is insane. He thinks I'm God, that I can do what only God can do. Right? So you're thinking, all right, we're getting somewhere. Jehoram is finally going to get to the point where he is going to actually fall on his face before God, acknowledge the all-sufficiency of God, and worship only him. Right? Well, he's well aware of what God can do. But he never once stops to consider calling in God's prophet to help with the matter. I'm sure that word had spread about how God raised even the Shunammite's son back to life to the prophet Elisha. And still, Jehoram isn't thinking to call for Elisha. God's prophet meant nothing to the king of Israel because God meant nothing to the king of Israel. Jehoram knew that God was capable of anything. He knew it. He accepted that truth and still wanted nothing to do with God. Um, Ruthie knows that I'm not big on emojis. Anyone know what an emoji is? I'm I'm not big on emojis. Um, For those that don't know, they're they're the little pictures and little characters that you send when you can send a text message. Um, Every once in a while, I'll use them. My favorite emoji is this picture of a guy with a palm in his face. Some of you know exactly what that means. You just... It's, 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 that, it's that expression. And sometimes you can't express it in the words. You just put the hand over the face emoji, and it's just, oh, my goodness, what on earth is going on? You know, it's just a way of expressing disbelief, disappointment, frustration, uh, just absolute being perplexed um, to something that seems rather obvious. Now, I give you that lesson on emojis because if God were to have used emojis, I believe that he would have used that emoji after what Jehoram said here in verse number seven. Look again at what it says. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. Now, not that God is ever shocked, not that God is ever surprised by anything we do, but for Jehoram to acknowledge God alone as the source of all life and the only hope of a man being cured of this horrifying disease and then to dismiss God's servant as one to call upon for help, God must have been so frustrated to see Jehoram so close and at the same time so far away. You read through his response in verse number seven and you're almost excited to see him finally learning. He's getting there. And then there's a sense of optimism that all the puzzle pieces are going to finally come into, come into place and connect in his head. And as you're anticipating him to take the next step in the right direction, he doesn't. You almost want to reach through the pages of Scripture here, grab him by the, the collar, and just shake him up a little bit and say, Yes, you're right, Jehoram, you're not God. You've got that right that much. You can't do what he's asking you to do. You can't bring a person back to life. You can't bring healing where he's asking you to do it. Only God can do it. So why don't you finally acknowledge him for the one who he really is and quit with this idolatry and this apostasy and come to him and believe in him? 
Instead of turning to God, though, Jehoram considers that the king of Syria is seeking a quarrel against him. This is where we enter that, that face palm emoji. If I could have titled my sermon that, I would have. But before we're too quick to single out Jehoram, how often do we as believers treat God the same way? Even though we've trusted in Christ, and hopefully all of us have, for our eternal salvation, how often do we neglect to go to God when we know that he is the only way, the only source, the only hope for our circumstances and our situation? Many of the trials that we face in life, God allows into our lives as a means of getting our attention and drawing us closer to him. That may be God's intended purpose, but it's ultimately up to us to respond to him the right way. Even though we know the matter is far too big for us, just as the king of Israel knew, the matter was far too big for him to ever, ever, uh, ever get accomplished. And what happens when you get in over your head? Because a lot of us, we, we, we know that we can't do something, but we'll ignore God's help and try and do something even though we know it's too much for us. And the thing that happens is that we get overwhelmed. And we often make the problem bigger than what it was before. How often do our actions lead God to do the whole face palm thing? To look down upon us and say, <laughs> again, not that he ever gets surprised, but more in just frustration where he was trying to do something to draw us to himself and instead of responding the way that he wanted us to respond we go and respond somewhere completely prideful completely selfish thinking that we don't need him even though we acknowledge that he's the only way that we're going to get out of this problem and we think that the message is completely different and we almost leave God doing one of these thinking my child what on earth are you doing again he never questioned he never you know wonders what we're going to be doing. But figuratively speaking, of course, because God knows everything that is ever going to happen. But there are many times where God is disappointed at how we handle certain matters in our lives. We should know better. In fact, we do know better. But the way we go about things doesn't always evidence that. I was talking to someone recently who was giving me some advice over something that I was dealing with. And I told him, I said, if someone came to me asking for advice for a similar situation, for a situation that I was presently in, I said, I know exactly what I would tell them to do, and it's exactly what you're telling me to do. But sometimes you need to hear it from someone else. Strangely enough, even though you know what needs to be done, sometimes you just need to hear it from another person. And as you hear the words come in, you're thinking, yeah, I knew that was the answer I was going to get. Because ultimately, I knew that's what needed to be done. I can't tell you how many times I, I've shared something with Ruthie, and she says, you know, didn't you just preach on this? And I'll have to remind myself that the Lord has given me, given me my, my wife and filled her with the Holy Spirit and allowed me to sometimes be cut off at my knees as she reminds me of something that I already knew. She said, you know, you already know what you need to do. You just need to now do it. 
It's not that we don't believe it to be true, it's just that we struggle. And I think it's a struggle with pride. It takes humility to recognize that you need someone else's help, that you can't do something on your own. Because now you're forced to admit that you cannot do something. You don't have the power. You don't have the strength to do it. Pride will often get in the way and tell you that you can do something, even though you know you can't. Pride will often blind you from what God is trying to show you in the midst of a trial and that he is the present, uh, he, is, he is the one that is present and he is the one that can help you through this and that he is more than sufficient for whatever you're going to need to get done. Has not God already proven himself faithful, powerful, helpful, comforting, encouraging, and everything else that you need him to be? Let me put it this way. Has God ever disappointed you? Has he ever disappointed you? No. Now pride is expected from unbelievers because they don't know any better. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the Bible tells us, it says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God and that enmity presented itself when Jehoram ignored God's servant Elisha when he was confronted with this impossible situation. And notice what we see in verse number eight of 2 Kings chapter five. 2 Kings chapter five and verse number eight. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. There is such a contrast between King Jehoram and the prophet Elisha. As the king is incredibly prideful and the prophet incredibly humble. Elisha has been slighted by the king. But when he eventually hears about how the king has responded to the letter that was sent from the king of Syria, he sends to the king of Israel and says, what's your problem? Am I missing something here? Has your mind gone blank so much that you've forgotten about what has recently transpired? Do you not remember what happened when you were dying and about to lose all your men without water? Do you not remember how God provided back then? Have you not heard about the Shunammite woman whose son had died and God raised him back to life? Have you not heard about any of these things that God has done? Are you so spiteful towards God that you're going to ignore that there is a prophet of God here in your part who can actually bring about a resolution to the situation. He says, send him my way. What are you even waiting for? Why are you mourning? Why are you sorrowing over something that is as simple as just saying, here's where you need to go. This is what he says there in verse number eight. He says, wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. What a contrast. He's got the solution. And I think, you know, this is commendable on the part of Elisha because he's been slighted by this king. He knows the king doesn't care about him at all. But when he hears about what the king has done, he immediately, Elisha does, he swallows his pride and he communicated with the king, offering him a solution for his problem. How easy would it have been for Elisha to pridefully sit at home knowing that the king was panicking. 
He hears about how the king is just in absolute torment. He could have easily sat back in his easy chair and thought, oh, this is so wonderful. I'm going to wait for this king to come begging to my door. And I'm going to just love every bit of this. I'm not going to move from this spot right here. Let him come to me. Let him come to me and we'll see how it goes. He doesn't do any of that. He sends word to him. He goes right to the king and he says, you don't have to feel this way. There's a solution. Just send him to the prophet. Send him to the man of God. He knew that this man was not a godly king. And again, a few chapters earlier, he agreed only to speak with him when a godly king, Jehoshaphat, was present. But this time, Elijah goes out of his way. He, he completely puts aside his pride. He reaches out to the king so that God would be glorified in this great miracle. Elisha was not about allowing Naaman to just return home to Syria without seeing the glory of God. He didn't want Naaman going home concluding that the God of Israel was like any other false god in the land who can deliver on absolutely nothing. He would have Naaman going home knowing that there is a prophet of God in Israel and that the only true God is the God of Israel, the only one capable of doing the impossible. And look again at the message that Elisha sends to the king of Israel there in verse number eight. Again, it says, and it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard the king, that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha is talking to his king boldly, and he is telling him what to do. Because King Jehoram is, uh, has been operating under the mindset that he doesn't even need God even though it is painfully obvious to him that he does. We're told in, in Proverbs 28, verse 1. Proverbs 28, verse 1, the Bible says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The righteous are as bold as a lion. And here you have a subject of the king of Israel, Elisha, boldly declaring to his king, Here's what you're going to do. You're going to send him my way. King Jehoram is convinced that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, seeks to go to war against him when all he's looking for is for his commander-in-chief, the general over his armies, to be healed from this leprosy. Elisha is bold as a lion. He stands right up to his king, knowing that God is directing him and knowing that God is going to be glorified in all of these actions. So he rebukes the king for his unbelief. He says, wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Almost to say, are you this much of a fool that you cannot think of one person in your entire kingdom who might be able to offer Naaman some help? Are you this far out of touch with the miracle working power of God that you cannot remember that there is a single prophet of God there in Israel? And then he tells the king what to do. He says, let him now come to me. And, he, and he, he's going to now see that there is a prophet in Israel. And what I love about this is that the king is that King Jehoram doesn't reject Elisha's advice. Why is that? Why doesn't he reject Elisha's advice? He wants nothing to do with Elisha. But now when Elisha sends word to him saying, listen, send him my way. He doesn't reject it because even though he won't admit it, he knows that Elisha is right. And I love Elijah's boldness in this instance because he doesn't shy away from doing and saying what is necessary. He's not seeking to please the king. He's seeking only to please God who has called him to a much higher commission. It is the duty and the responsibility of every believer 
to denounce unbelief and to proclaim that God is ready to honor all those who honor him and ready to work wonders through those who respond to God in faith. It was a very roundabout way that Naaman ended up traveling. But eventually he would get to where he needed to be. The words of that little maid would eventually be proven to be true that there is a prophet in Samaria that could bring some healing to this man. And Naaman would eventually be healed of this dreadful disease. And notice what we see in verse number nine of 2 Kings chapter five. It says, so Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. He came and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. I cannot imagine what Naaman must have felt at that moment. Put yourself in his shoes. Now he's a wealthy man to begin with. He tried, I'm sure, every experimental treatment that is known to man. Again, serious, the basic world power at this time. So if there's any doctor who knows anything about medicine, it's there. And he's met with every doctor. He's paid all the co-pays. He's paid for all the treatments and nothing has worked out. He's probably tried every ointment to apply to his body to help, help see some physical or at least some outward change and to no avail. He'd done everything, everything humanly possible to rid himself of this leprosy, but all of it was done to no avail. And finally, by chance, right? Because it all happens by chance, right? No. There is no chance, there's no coincidence when it comes, with, comes to God. But a little maid had been taken captive and is now serving in his home. Wow, what are the chances of that? She tells his wife of a prophet in Israel who can bring him healing, leads him on this journey, and he now finds himself standing at the very door of the prophet that the little maid back in his home had told him could bring, he, bring him healing. Now, I'm sure there was some skepticism, as every other avenue had proven ineffective. But there was enough intrigue, there was enough cautious optimism that this is actually going to work out. That maybe this time would be different than all the other times. And even if his expectations were low, because with as many times as he's probably tried to find a cure, which we're not told, but I'm sure he tried everything and left no stone unturned. He's probably very low expectations, right? Because he's all the other opportunities, he's probably like as high as the sky as far as expectations are concerned, only for them to be completely dashed. So he's probably thinking, you know, I'm going to lower my expectations as much as possible so that if something does turn out to be good, I'm really going to be blown away. But I'm not going to expect too much. But there was enough curiosity and intrigue for him to take this journey. And so here he is at the door of the prophet Elisha. And I'm sure there was probably a little bit of excitement as well as he's thinking that, you know what? This could all possibly be over. Naaman might actually have his life back. Everything that was described about him back in verse number one of this chapter might be true, might be worthwhile, because those five little words at the end of that verse might disappear altogether. But he was a leper. He had been looking forward to this encounter ever since he heard the message from that little maid. And now the time had come. Would it be everything that he was hoping for? Or would he once again go away disappointed? Now last week we looked at point number four. And we've been stretching this miracle, this tenth miracle of Elisha for like three messages now. But we looked at point number four, which was the misapprehension of the miracle. I want you to notice point number five tonight, or this morning rather. 
Maybe it will be tonight by the time we're done. Um, Point number five, the requirement of the miracle. I'm not going to keep you that long. I'm I'm just kidding, of course. The requirement of the miracle. Now, we know there's a miracle coming because I've I've laid the groundwork for the miracle. But notice the requirement that's made in verse number 10. It says in verse number 10 here of 2 Kings chapter 5, And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Elisha knows that Naaman is coming to see him. And rather than meeting him in person, he sends a messenger out to him. So Naaman has arrived at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha doesn't even come and answer the door. He sends a messenger out and instructs him what to do. Now, there are several lessons that we can learn from this. As a servant of Christ, who Jesus Christ humbled himself to wash the feet of his disciples, we should never refuse the most menial service, nor should we despise even the poorest person. This has been evidenced through the life and ministry of Elisha up to this point. As he helped everyone that came to him and asked him for help, he ministered to even the physical needs of Elijah. We're told us back in chapter 3 that he even washed his hands. From this, we also learn that the servant of Christ should never favor those of affluence, nor should he feed the pride of the self-important. And based on what we'll see from Naaman's response, Naaman considered himself someone that should be highly favored. The reason Elisha didn't show him any preferential treatment was because Elisha wasn't an ambassador of the king of kings. And with great dignity, he was letting Naaman know that he was at no one's beck and call, but still let him know what needed to be done in order for him to ever be healed. Elisha didn't go running out of the house and bow before Naaman. He simply sent a messenger with a specific set of instructions of what needed to be done for Naaman to be healed. God is no respecter of persons, and we shouldn't be either. There has been so much damage done in churches where favoritism has been shown to those that are in positions of authority or in high places because it not only hurts those that are in a lowly position, but it also hurts everyone else. Not to mention it goes against God's clear command in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, where it says that no flesh should glory in his presence. The most gifted and the most talented of this world aren't due any more consideration from God than the lowliest because regardless of who you are, Romans 3.23, it levels the playing field for every single one of us where it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how fancy the car is that you drive. I don't care how big your house is and how many bathrooms you have and how many bedrooms you have or anything of that sort. Because it says that the ground at the cross is level. Every single one of us has sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God is not going to look upon you and your affluence and say, well, you know what? You're slightly better off in society than other people, so I'm going to show you favor. And you know what? We can bypass the whole salvation by faith. I'm just going to allow you into my kingdom based on how much you have. Never going to happen. The rich man is no closer to being saved because of his great wealth than the poor man. The educated man is no closer to being saved because of his wisdom than the uneducated man. God has made it clear that if anyone is going to be saved, it is only going to be through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Not only did Elisha demonstrate great dignity in this encounter with Naaman, he also evidenced a personal humility, having his eyes fixed on giving God all the glory. It's not that he didn't care about Naaman's welfare. Remember, he's the one that actually reached out to the king of Israel and said, send him my way. 
He was concerned about the king's welfare as well as Naaman. And he says, send him my way. Elisha arranged for all of this. He arranged for Naaman to come to his house because he wanted to see him healed. But more than wanting to see him healed, he wanted him to know that there's a God in Israel. A real God that can actually do the impossible. And Elisha knew that he could have robbed God of the glory that was only due to God had he personally come out, bowed himself before Naaman, laid hands upon him and said, be healed. Elisha knew that the only thing of importance was the message and that it made no difference who delivered it. And I find it so encouraging as a servant of God because I know that it has absolutely nothing to do with me, but it has everything to do with the message that God himself is declaring through me. In 30, 40, maybe 50 years or so, or whatever, whenever it is that God decides to take me home, what's going to be important is not whether people remember my name, but that they remember the message. In all honesty, it may take 50 years for some of you to start pronouncing my name correctly, uh, but none of that matters as long as people continue to hear the word of God preached from behind this pulpit. Elisha was humble enough to know that the messenger was less important than the message. And better for Naaman to think as little about the messenger than about the message. He wanted the message to be what he really went home with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul had to rebuke the believers in Corinth as they were making more of the messenger than the message. And listen to these words that we read in the first six verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, And I, brethren, and so he's speaking to believers, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You see, Paul is writing to this group of believers there in the church in Corinth who are getting hung up on the messenger. They're more focused on the messenger. John the Baptist even said, in John 1, 27, he said this of Christ. He says, he it is who coming after me is preferred before me whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. And later on in John 3, verse 30, he would also say, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. The apostle Paul, John the Baptist, both agree that it is less about them and more about God and his word. The messenger makes no difference as long as it's the word of God that's coming forth. Who cares what he looks like? Who cares what his name is? Who cares if he goes down in history so long as the message that he brings is honoring to God and straight from his word? So what was the message? What was the message? Look back at verse number 10. It says, And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and, they, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Was there some sort of healing power in the waters, waters of the Jordan River? Of course not. 
So why did Naaman have to go and wash seven times in the Jordan River? Well, God was teaching Naaman a valuable lesson in all this as well. Naaman's pride made him think that he deserved some sort of preferential treatment based on his position and power. And yet, Elisha doesn't even come out and meet him personally, but rather sends a messenger to deliver these simple instructions to him. As we'll see next week, this would greatly agitate Naaman, uh, even though he is at the mercy of the prophet. Right? He's come all this way, and he's going to do anything the prophet tells him to do, but he's going to be upset about this. And it's hard to believe that someone in Naaman's situation would still struggle with pride. I mean, how could he still have pride? After all that he's been through, after having this horrible disease that is literally killing him, you'd think he'd be broken from all that pride. You'd think he'd be the one who didn't struggle with pride at all. Whatever pride he may have had prior to leprosy, you thought would have been completely destroyed once he was sick, but that wasn't the case. God was using Elisha to teach Naaman a lesson in humility. Just as leprosy, as we've talked about, is a picture of a, a sin in a person's life and can only be cleansed by the grace of God, so too would Naaman only be cleansed physically by the grace of God, just as a sinner would have to humble himself before the Almighty God, recognize his own deficiencies and God's all-sufficiency and believe only on him so too must Naaman come to the absolute end of himself and recognize that God alone would be the agent of his healing. The first goal of the gospel is to destroy the pride of man, to bring him low before Almighty God. Elisha's message to Naaman was that he must humble himself before the God of Israel. You're going to hear this message from a lowly servant, and you're going to go to this dirty, disgusting river, and you're going to bathe seven times. You may not want to do it, but if you're going to do it and you're going to see any healing, you're going to humble to God's means and to God's methods. Naaman was used to being the one to give out orders. He was the one commanding an entire army, telling others what to do, where to go, and where to be. He was the one in charge. When Elisha instructed him, go, Go and wash in Jordan seven times. It was his way of saying, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. It was his way of saying, submit yourself therefore to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. What we had as a scripture reading earlier today is basically what Elisha, through the servant, through the messenger, was telling Naaman. We're going to destroy this pride once and for all. And if you're going to see healing, it's going to come through humility. So do as you're told for once. Naaman would have to come down from off his high horse. He would have to take his proper place before the Most High God. Naaman would have to come down from his chariot that he was on. He would have to wash where God instructed, not once, not twice, the Bible says seven times. Seven times he'd have to do this. God was doing a much bigger work in Naaman than simply bringing physical healing. He was destroying his pride. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes about the generosity of the churches of Macedonia. And he said this in verse number 5, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5. He said, and this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. 
I love what it says there. It says, they gave their own selves to the Lord first. There is only one way to heaven, only one, and that is through believing on Jesus Christ as your Savior. There is only one way for success, and that is through submitting yourself in obedience to God and his word and his will. And I love that it says there about the churches of Macedonia who helped with such generosity. He says, they gave their own selves to the Lord. Pride needs to be destroyed. Self-will needs to be relinquished. Self-righteousness needs to be abandoned for God to truly reign in our lives. Do we trust God enough to give ourselves completely over to him? Pride is not only a revolt against God, it is elevating ourselves to be like God. If we're ever going to have success in this life, if we're ever if we ever desire to be a true servant of Christ, our self-will and self-pleasing needs to stop. And we must submit ourselves to the will of God. May we as Christians here at Latham Bible Baptist Church be known for being believers who gave their own selves to the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your patience. Lord, we know that there are times when you are trying to get our attention. And Lord, our pride is blinding us from receiving your message. I'm thankful, Lord, that you are long-suffering toward us. And that, Lord, you send your Holy Spirit to break us down of our pride. Lord, to purge us when it is necessary. As painful as it may be, you understand the necessity of it. Lord, for all of it is preparing us for something that is even greater. You are strengthening us and equipping us to be a better servant for you. And I pray, Lord, that you would do as much of that in my life as well as the lives of all of those that are here today. Lord, as we still need so much work to be done on us, to be the servants that you've called us to be. Lord, help us to not pridefully go through life, but help us with humility to recognize who you are. And Lord, help us to be known for giving ourselves completely to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.